Welcome to the Good Divorce Show. Not every divorce needs to end in disaster. It's time to see divorce in another perspective. Here to help with that is your host, Karen McNinney. Well, hello, listeners of The Good Divorce Show. So happy to have you with us today. You're in for a real treat. We have um, a fine expert coming from the clinical world. Sean Fitzpatrick is a psychotherapist in private practice and the executive director of the Jung Center in Houston. Uh, He holds a master's degree in religious studies from Rice University, a clinical psychology from the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and he received his PhD in psychology with a specialization in union studies from Saybrook University. That's a lot of letters after (laughs) Sean's name. He is also a senior fellow of the American Leadership Forum and part of their facilitator core. He teaches at the Jung Center in Houston, presents lectures and workshops um, with a wide range of organizations, and we're happy to be in the classroom with you today. Welcome to the show, Sean Fitzpatrick. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Yeah, I actually want to start with a little bit of context of who it is that we're speaking to today. And beyond all the very impressive degrees and the letters after your name, you come with the credibility, but you also come with an extraordinary passion and compassion for the work that you do. And and before the interview, I asked you what brought you to this field, what attracts you to this kind of work. And with your permission, Sean, I'd like to just read what you wrote. Sure, sure, absolutely. In your own words, my life has been deeply enriched by psychotherapy, both as a client and as a therapist, sitting with others in their doubt and their suffering and their experiences of change, discovery, and transformation is a profound privilege. And it always changes me. One of my mentors said that he does this because it's the only way he's figured out how to live with himself. And I would say that it's the primary way I can sit close to the mystery of our existence Just beautiful, Sean. Tell us more about that mystery and the work that you have found yourself doing with couples. How lovely it is to hear your own own words amplified in somebody else's voice. Um, So expressive. Thank you. Um, So um, so sitting sitting with the mystery of existence, um, I I guess, you know, I, as a therapist, I work, uh, I work with individuals. I haven't I'm not a couples therapist, but of course, anytime you're sitting with an individual, you're sitting with somebody who has so many inner relationships. They carry their communities within them. And actually, you know, neuroscience bears this out pretty clearly that we're not one. Uh, we have this fantasy, of course, because we have a body that is continuous mm. we ha- and we have one mouth right? Um, that we are a single unitary being. And it's not the case. It's not the case uh, symbolically. It's not the case neurologically. We're actually multiple centers of consciousness uh, within us. And uh, and so as I, as I sit in, in, uh, in my consulting room here in Houston uh, with a client, they, they, their single body walks in and they bring all of their relationships with them, right? And all of their history, right? And then actually their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their Mm. ancestors all walk in the door with them. Um, Oh, I think that's such an essential reminder. We don't stand alone ever. Right, right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself can be transformative, recognizing that sort of awakening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Specifically, I want to drill in a little bit with you. The moment when... And I know there's listeners out there right now who are in this shared conversation with you and I today who are sitting on that teeter-totter of, am I staying in the marriage? Am I leaving the marriage? Is this a good marriage? Is it a bad marriage? Should I be in? Are we out? And and for many of us, that is a a real teeter-totter that can go back and forth for a period of time. And so there is this body of work around discernment and wondering if you could unpack a bit of what people should be considering and and what is sort of the normal and natural progression of relationships. So pull a thread there and let's see where it leads us for those yeah. who are in the discernment process. Well, so I'm going to lay a couple of, let's call them cocktail party words on, uh, on you. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> so that you can, you don't have to remember these. Um, you can, uh, but, but they're fun to have in Latin. So uh, the two words I'll use are separatio and conjunctio. Um, they, they represent um, 
uh, these alchemical notions that part of the process of human growth and development always involves separation, mm. right? Um, it's how we come to see ourselves as different than others. It's how we make, you use the word discernment, which I think is beautiful. It's like how we discriminate and see the beauty, the beautiful complexity and nuance of human experience. And for our, you know, in this cultures, you know, particularly Western culture in the last several hundred years, you know, and that the rise of Western science has been so much about separation so that we can discern that, you know, all the different little pieces and parts and how they work together. The other word, you know, the conjunctio is about the parallel process, right? The other side of the process where we come back together mm. right? and union and these separations and reunion unions and reunions are just a natural part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we make them very specific. We're having very specific experiences of separation and union or reunion within the context of our relationships, right? And our partner mm-hmm. relationships. But I think we have to expect that separation is actually part of the process across the across the course of a life. And even if we um, have what the, the, this cultural ideal, which is the f- 50 year anniversary of a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, um, uh, first of all, we should always dethrone these ideals. Uh, and Yes, and please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But second, secondly, I would say, even within that, there are going to be moments when uh, separation happens, necessary separation. It may not look like one partner moving into another, you know, in another uh, place. Uh, it may not look like affairs. It may not look like all these sort of external markers. But it is, but it, it often is experienced within a couple as a period of time when they are not relating to each other the way that they used to, and they haven't figured out how to relate to each other in new, in new ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we could just normalize that separation is a natural and normal part of, of all human relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of uh, Esther Perel, the great, yes. uh, which who you have interviewed and have connected with. Yeah. And I, I believe it was her who described once every relationship is connect, disconnect, repair, repeat, yeah. connect, disconnect, disconnect, repair, repeat. Right. Right. That yes. is yes. normal. That is, that is normal. And, and she, uh, she's the patron saint of this work right now. And mm-hmm. it's been so impactful to me um, that she, she talks about it confessionally. She's like, I, I've had three marriages with the same husband, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Can you unpack that concept a little more, this idea of three marriages and sometimes it's with different people, but often right. if we can see our way, it's about a reinvention of self within the marriage. Yes. I, 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 that is such a beautiful way of putting it. It's a reinvention of self within the, within the marriage. Uh, it can be the case that the actual, like what we might call the objective marriage or the, you know, the outs, the outside marriage, the, the external marriage to the, to the other person needs to come to an end for you to um, be able to uh, connect with new and different parts of yourself or the new, the places where you are being called to grow. Right. But the first question that we, I think, it would be wise for us to ask ourselves when we start to have thoughts and fantasies about um, ending a marriage and and uh, and moving on is okay. So what what within me needs to separate? What understanding? What if what has this other person been carrying for me that I need to carry for myself? Oh I, wow! Will you repeat uh, that? I think that's yeah. essential. What is this other person being carrying for me that I need to now carry for myself? We have this cultural fantasy um, that uh, my great mentor, Jim Hollis, says, he was the mentor from your the quote earlier. Um, uh, uh, Jim Hollis says, is that the magical other, mm. this magical other person who is going to care for me like no one has cared for me is going to make me whole you know 
uh, is going to be the the sexiest partner in bed and is going to be the best co-parent and is going to love me and make me not feel any of the suffering and uncertainty and doubt uh, and pain that I feel just naturally as being a human being on this earth. So we, we spin up this fantasy that there's this magical other person who's going to make me feel that way. Mm-hmm. And then when we get into, we have this, uh, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name check Jim and I'm going to tell you the name of this book. It's called The Eden Project for your listeners. Great. Um, thank you. We'll yeah, get that re- in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, re- it's really good. Um, best book on relationships I've read. But what he says is that, you know, um, the first, say, six months of a relationship is a kind of a temporary psychosis. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes. The other person is the best, the greatest ever. This is the oh, one. the pedestals are so high. Oh. There's nothing wrong with them. It is glorious. glorious. We're falling in love. There's nothing better. And we're driven through like biology really pushes us toward that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have these ecstatic, erotic experiences, you know, and feelings of connection, uh, bonding hormones. And um, we have all of this. And he'll also say that the relationship only begins when you become a problem to each other. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's Which when the relationship tends actually to begins. Be maybe 18 to 24 months. I don't know if we could put a yeah. time frame on it, but. It's been my experience. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. personally and professionally of recognizing that that flood of love hormones and our projection, right? There's another cocktail world that right. clinicians yeah. like to use that we're, we're yep. putting all of that fantasy on someone else inappropriately. It's actually not an act of love to put right. anyone on a pedestal right. because they will disappoint you. They will and they have to right? They have to disappoint you um, They, in order to be human-sized. They have to be humans, mm-hmm. right? They can't be gods. They can't be the magical other. And, I, it, you know, not to go too deep in the cultural weeds, but I would say that the, this has to do in our particular moment in time, this has to do with the natural retreat of um, uh, particular religious forms as binding in culture. Like we're not born into a culture that is all Christian, for instance, or mm-hmm. that is all where we have a, a, a relationship with the divinity that is supposed to take manage a lot of this, you know, this need that we have. Um, I think it's only the pressure is only increased with time that um, these fantasies that we have, that something is going to take care of us and hold us and make us, you know, make us feel complete is going to be an actual, you know, physical, you know, skin and bones, human being sitting across from us. We used to put it out into, you know, put it out into the heavens. And uh, it's just so unreasonably overburdened uh, human relationships that it's impossible, really. It's impossible right. to have a human relationship and with the magical other. Like, mm. um, mm-hmm. We don't ever, they don't, they have to be superhuman. This other person has to be superhuman in order for them to be adequate for us. Oh which is just asking too much. And and you're referencing some of the work from your own book that you published in 2019 through Rutledge, The Ethical Imagination, Exploring Fantasy and Desire in Analytical Psychology. But inside of that, this, um, as you talk about the inner relationship that might be coming to an an end might actually be the relationship that needs attention, not the outer relationship that's coming to an end. And this idea of the three marriages. Um, Dig into some of that research and uh, messaging from your book around those ideas. Sure. And I'm going to make a big caveat for y'all. I would love to sell that book. However, it is an, it is not a, it's not a self-help book. It's a, it's a, it's a theory book. So a theory um, clinical book, let it be theory, known. Theory clinical book. I just, I don't want, yeah. Um, but please, please buy it, but don't expect it to be a how-to. Um, but uh, so I, one of the chapters I write about uh, a, a book called Trom Novel, which is actually the basis for a film that some of, some of the listeners may have seen called Eyes Wide Shut with, with uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. And, um, you know, it's a, it is a story. I think it's a story about that transition from the first marriage to the second marriage, um, between two people where the, um, illusion that this other person is going to meet all of my, all of my needs and that the other person is always only thinking about me, (laughs) Mm. right. Is always only, only desires me. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, it, blo- it blows that up. And I think in a really important way uh, and makes 
it makes um uh, so for those who have seen the film uh Just give so, us a little recap so we can yeah, yeah put really it on your netflix list because i want right. to say it was maybe an 80s film it 90s? was 90 it was 90s. 90s it was the famously the last film shot by stanley kubrick the british oh, director stanley okay. kubrick who directed the shining and full metal jacket and dr strange love and all these classic you know amazing movies so uh it also famously uh tied up nicole kidman and tom cruise for like two or three years like they didn't make any other movies they only made this movie and it it's a story of a uh he he reset it in new york city and it's a story of a physician tom cruise and and his uh you know uh, his amazing wife beautiful wife and they have children and um over the course of a brief period of time basically a, a night um uh, the Tom Cruise character is uh, sorely tempted uh, um, to uh, having an affair isn't exactly right. Um, he's uh, he's uh, he's taken into a secret society, introduced to a secret society where they have these ritual orgies, basically. And he, he comes out on the other side of it. Uh, he's kind of driven into it by a story that his wife tells about um her fantasy, just uncontrollable fantasy for somebody outside the marriage. Like he's mm. there on vacation and she sees somebody that's really attractive and she's, she's, she's really attracted to him and she didn't act on it, but mm-hmm. he can't get that image out of his head. Like he internalizes it. Um, and, uh, and it, it, that, that she would think about anybody, but him was, you know, um, really, um, I don't know what quite the right word is, but it was foundation shaking. You know, right. so he he goes out and he almost, you know, like he almost has an sexual sexual experience, and then, you know, there he doesn't. And the the movie ends. Um, I, I won't spoil it, but what I would say is on a note of a radical change in the relationship between the two of them, where yes. suddenly they both have to reckon with how the two of them aren't aren't just magically fused with each other. They're living, breathing, independent, growing. Um, they have the capacity to think and see on their own. And that can be really frightening um, because that means they also have the capacity to change in ways and to no longer desire the other. Right. Mm. Um, And uh, that's a part of becoming mature, like mature human beings and and Mm -hmm. having a mature relationship is understanding that really we choose this relationship every day, you know? Joining us today is Sean Fitzpatrick. And when we come back from the break, um, we're going to talk a little bit about how divorce lives inside the legal system and how that sometimes can be a disservice to the process of, of a forever relationship if you share kids. So please stay tuned. We're talking today with Sean Fitzpatrick. He is the executive director of the Jung Center in Houston. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Before you call the lawyer, call the good divorce coach. Give your family the gift of working with a certified divorce coach, a co-parenting specialist, and a mediator. Karen McNinney has the knowledge and skills to guide you through the full divorce journey before, during, and after. It's one thing to get divorced. It's another to be divorced. The Good Divorce Coach will teach you and your partner how to be divorced with less drama, less destruction, and less debt. Visit thegooddivorcecoach.com to get in touch with Karen. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burroughs and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burroughs and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Welcome back to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. Have a question for Karen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show with Karen. Welcome back, listeners. We are chatting today with Sean Fitzpatrick. He is the executive director of the Jung Center in Houston, uh, Texas. We're so happy to have you and your expertise with us today. And we were just chatting about this idea that we have to understand that our relationships are not stagnant. None of our relationships are stagnant because we Mm. as humans are not stagnant. And that the need for separation to our inner self, to outer self, should just be part of the normal expectation of how we do life. Yeah. Yeah. And as parents... Um, sometimes we experience that in a way that we can see it a little more clearly. We're both parents. We've walked right. a bit of those days. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so this is, so separation, I think as parents, it's easier to see the way in which this human being we love is changing because it manifests physically, right? They get right. bigger, right? Their bodies yes. change. We go um, to potty training and giving baths right. and reading books to, can I have the keys and 20 bucks? That's, ex- that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, uh, pr- pretty quick, like all that happens, you know, really quickly. It's harder to, uh, like, we lose this perspective and it's embedded in the profession of psychology. We think of, we think of human growth and development as happening from ages zero to 18, you know? And then it stops, right? Which is not which is not true. It, we're changing until we die, right? Our, our life is changed, and and our life involves separations uh, as well as these unions, re- experiences, of reunions. You know that the the image that comes up for me is um, uh, my son uh, as a kindergartner. So we have one child, and my wife and I, and uh, the first day of kindergarten. We and the, imagine many parents have this experience. Like the teachers let you in the school, let us come into the classroom with them, you know. So we walk down the hall and talk about the school and the experiences and point things out with them. And we're having this shared experience, this little triad, right? This little family unit is having this experience, and we're all kind of a part of that whole. And we leave him in the room, and then we go, and then we and then we leave, and we have our feelings about that. The second day is the, was the killer. So the second day we show up and they wouldn't let us walk to the classroom with him. So we're going to walk him to the door. And, and then there's he's almost got this like bouncers at the door. Like, PCA, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The principal yeah. and like, goodbye. Thank you, parents. You're that's done. That's exactly right. And- yep. Yeah. And they even in our high school, they actually had a crying room set up. They had a, they had a place where we could go have coffee and cry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know? I'm familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but just watching Danny, um, watching him walk down the hall with his backpack on, ignoring the PTO parents who were there to help him. He knew where he was going. He had no problem. He didn't need us. He didn't turn around and look for us. <laughs> you know, he was good. And that's a separate, so that's a natural and a healthy separation that um, meant a radical change in how we carried him within us. Mm. We had our lives, our identities our um, bodies really were so structured around him needing constant surveillance <laughs> and constant care, constant contact. And that moment meant that that was over, you know, mm-hmm. that it was over for us psychically, right? Mm-hmm. Symbolically, things had changed. And that didn't mean that when he came home, he didn't need hugs and he didn't need you know, all the snacks stuff that we had and been doing snacks bedtime and stories, all the rest of that. No, but what it did mean was that we were not that fused three person unit, you know, mm-hmm. so we, we were forced to reckon with his separateness. Right. And he was ready to separate. And, yeah. you know, I, th- this morning I sent off my 18 year old and 16 year old to high school, keys in hand off the car. It is the last day my daughter will attend high school. Yeah, And so I'm on the cusp on the other end. I remember the kindergarten day and now here we are on the other separation, which of course we celebrate the emancipation 
um, and the recognition of it, but that doesn't mean there still isn't just like a pain and, and reckoning with my own identity. I think that's the thing I didn't anticipate. Yes. Reckoning with my own identity, reckoning with my own needs, getting met by this person relating to me in this way. Like we get them fixed in time. And this is so true in human adult relationships. You know, the, 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 you know, the bride that stood before me when I was 26 and she was 28 and, you know, gazed, we gazed at each other with love. Like we both have changed so much, (laughs) you know, and we, in our romantic fantasy, uh, and it's a collective cultural fantasy mm-hmm. is that we, is that this other person is not going to change in some fundamental ways that once we've made created this marriage, that now we are fused in a specific way that will not end. And it's just wrong. It's actually denying of our humanity. Mm. Um, and so when we start to think about divorce, that we, each of us, myself and my partner, maybe um, have gotten to a place in our lives where that structure of our relationship has to come to an end, Mm. right? That doesn't mean the end of the relationship. It means the way the the relationship was organized in a good divorce, um, which I know can take so many different forms, but what, what in a good divorce, we're continuing to be in relationship with this person, even if we don't see them on an ongoing basis, even if respectful silence, right, is the way that the good divorce needs, that the relationship has to happen moving mm-hmm. forward. We, I think, do ourselves a disservice by imagining that we're no longer, that that person is no longer in us. They'll always be in us. They will mm-hmm. always be a part of our inner community. Um, we have changed the ex- external terms of uh-huh. that relationship, uh-huh. um, but we will always be in relationship with them some way. And maybe in some very concrete external ways, you know, to your point, like we we might be good co-parents and actively involved co-parents where we're living close to each other. And we're, you know, as we're both involved in the child's, you know, major life, you know, life transitions and maybe big events, celebrations, disciplining, you know, all of those things. And the, you know, my hope is that my clients walk out and they still really have a, a co-parenting relationship and the kids know like, that's my team. That's my parent team. Yep. Um, Yes. But this other idea of, like you said, the change of identity, which we can relate to as a parent, like they don't need me to drive them to school anymore. I right. really am just an ATM and an Uber as needed. <laughs> However, inside the relationship, also kind of the life shock when someone doesn't need us to still be the thing that we've always been to them, where there That's is right. this independence and transformation. And maybe one person is more embracing and in that growth and someone else might be more stuck. And then the alchemy mm-hmm. starts to change. Yeah. And, and another, another way of framing that, I think it's, it's super, super easy for me as a partner to look at my partner and say, Oh, they're stuck. Ah. <laughs> um, and another way of framing that would be we are we are two different people who are developing in different paces and in different directions, right? Mm-hmm. And we, thinking back with Esther Perel, there can be moments of radical reevaluation of that, right? Radical mm-hmm. confrontation with it, and and um, willingness to talk about what's real, and think about what does the relationship need to be now moving forward. So in mm-hmm. her case, they did decided that they would not end the legal marriage. That does not mean that they didn't radically change the relationship. And some of us can make a decision to end the legal marriage and uh, and yet still be in relationship, right? And in a way that is nuanced and thoughtful and cared for and that we're both thinking about and we're both attending to, mm-hmm. um, right? And not running away from, not hiding And certainly in the good divorce journey, often what we speak about is that if you share children, the marriage is ending, the relationship is not. Right. Right. We are transforming your relationship with different sort of tools and boundaries and expectations and understanding as you raise these children across two homes. Yes. So let's presume that our, our listeners today, as they hear this and they've discerned it's time. We've all agreed it's time. We're going to end the legal marriage. Are there some specific 
cautionary tales or things that you see that we we do that don't serve the longer outcome um, in terms of yeah. what we should start paying attention to as we walk down the path of divorce? Well, I have, uh, yes. So uh, I, I have, I think, two thoughts that are kind of two aspects of the same thought. So it a compassion. So compassion means to suffer with. Um, to suffer with. And uh, in a practical term, compassion involves uh, empathy, which we all natively have some degree of. Some of us, I would say, are better able to access it than others. But empathy is simply having the capacity to uh, identify with somebody else's experience and feel kind of what they're feeling. You know, like, what is what is this person actually feeling? Um, and um, so it's empathy paired with uh, the intention to be of help, right? For the other, mm. we can, can be compassionate partners in a divorce, right? So, so we're attuned to what the other person is actually experiencing, not taking responsibility for it. That's a different matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, but attuned to what they're actually feeling and having an intention that um, we are at, at, at least not going to um, increase suffering. You know, um, and so the, the thought that is paired with that is the context in which divorce happens is is legal. The context in which divorce happens is it means entering into um, a warrior culture, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, and often the way it's constructed in the West right now is uh, by and large it is I win if the other person loses that um, I have to line up my soldiers on my side mm-hmm. and hire my very expensive general mm-hmm. who's going to marshal uh, my forces against the very expensive general on the other side and all of the people who are lined up to fight the battle. And it is absolutely the antithesis of compassionate and uh, and it's the antithesis of, of relating, you know, maintaining relationships. It's a way of hiding from it. I want to be very clear that there are situations uh, that there are situations which that is the only choice. That's right. Right. You High have have conflict, two- abusive, yeah. narcissistic. Absolutely. Like there's many right. stories that have to go down that path, but there are just as many that don't. Right. Individuals who are listening to us today and like, I don't want to be enemies with my former spouse. I don't want to go to war. I don't want us mm-hmm. to both end up with less at the end. Is there a path? that we can choose that is more about abundance and less about scarcity. It is a choice that both partners make. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Both partners have to make that choice. Uh, And that's when that doesn't happen, you know, one, the partner who one inclines in that direction can take on an undue burden of guilt and responsibility Mm -hmm. and say, why am I not having a good divorce? You know, Mm -hmm. what am I doing wrong? And the trick there is in holding yourself to account while not taking on the responsibility of the other person, right? You know, what am I responsible for in myself to my values in this moment as I relate to this person who, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, with whom I'm changing, you know, the, the nature of our relationship. Um, and if you have somebody on the other side who is not, in that project with you, mm-hmm. then you're not responsible for that. <laughs> you're not responsible for that. Yeah. yeah. And I recently had a client ask, like, can I have a good divorce experience, even if they're not having a good divorce experience? I'm like, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's yeah. the, the story that you're, you're writing for yourself and there are choices and, and you have agency within that. Um, and just like choosing the marriage every day of love, choosing the good divorce every day is is just the other way that we enter into that relationship. I have a practical, a very practical story. It's one of my favorite little therapy metaphors that uh, I got from acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's it applies to so much in life. It definitely applies to this. So imagine that suddenly you find yourself with a rope in your hands and you're being pulled and you can't, and you can't, you barely can hold your ground, but you're, you're losing it. And you look up and you realize you're being pulled toward the edge of a cliff. You're going to fall off the edge of the cliff and you look a little bit further and you see it's actually a massive gorge. It's this canyon. It's this deep canyon. 
and you're being pulled and pulled and pulled closer and closer and closer to the edge. And you look up and you see on the other side of the canyon is a monster, 10 times your size. And there's no way that you can keep from being pulled in and you keep being dragged closer and closer and closer. Question is, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? You drop the rope. Why are you holding the rope? Mm-hmm. Why are you holding the rope? So, um, and, and, and the, the sort of the fifth degree black belt version of that is, why did you pick up the rope? <laughs> <laughs> because, and this is what happens when we're, you know, when we're, change, when we're changing relationship, I think the, the um, effects can be like splitting the atom. Right, we have this incredibly fused system that is coming apart, and the energy release can be terrible and terrific. And um, but we do still have choice in it. So this person who wants to have a good marriage while apart or a good, good divorce while the other is not having a good divorce, I think one of the things you can do is always be asking, "Wait a minute, <laughs> do I have to engage in this fight? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why does this person need to be?" Why does this person need to be pulling me to the edge? Or do I need to like, do do I need to be a part of this at all? Right. Do I need to allow myself to get emotionally pulled into whatever their, their drama is, their agony, right. Their suffering. Yeah. Beautiful metaphor, such rich knowledge coming to us today with Sean Fitzpatrick, the executive director of the Jung Center in Houston. And when we get back, we're going to hear a little bit more about some illustrative stories of when people have overcome and brought their very best self to their compassionate divorce experience. Please stay tuned. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Before you call the lawyer, call the Good Divorce Coach. Give your family the gift of working with a certified divorce coach, a co-parenting specialist, and a mediator. Karen McNinney has the knowledge and skills to guide you through the full divorce journey before, during, and after. It's one thing to get divorced. It's another to be divorced. The Good Divorce Coach will teach you and your partner how to be divorced with less drama, less destruction, and less debt. Visit thegooddivorcecoach.com to get in touch with Karen. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Welcome back to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. Have a question for Karen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show with Karen. Hello, welcome back. I'm Karen chatting today with Sean Fitzpatrick out of Houston, Texas. Although I'm not getting much twang today. So I don't know if this is your <laughs> your roots are in Texas. I have, I have, my roots are not in Texas. My roots are actually uh, uh, North uh, Maryland and uh, Southern Pennsylvania, but we've moved around a bit. So I moved to Colorado when I was young and, mm-hmm. uh, and grew up in Colorado. And, uh, but you know, I've, Texas has grown on me and uh, but most particularly the, the word y'all. Y'all, y'all is very so useful. It's so helpful. One of the things that uh, when I sit down with a couple and we begin our good divorce journey, our first agreement is do no more harm. A lot of harm has been done. We don't need to go back and relive it. We don't need to poke at it. We don't need to make new weather. We don't have to poke the fire. Um, And yet this is harder than we might think because those wounds we carry are very real. And sometimes when we're hurting, we really want to hurt the other person. Yeah. It's such a hard, so this is the first, you know, harm is the great Hippocratic um, dictum, right? So the beginning of modern medicine starts with this, right? It's part of the Hippocratic oath. We don't want to do any harm. But the problem with that, of course, is that harm will inevitably occur, mm-hmm. right? But there's a difference between, um, I, I hesitate to use the word intentional, but um, there's a difference between inflicting inflicting pain for pain Right. Yes. And accepting 
that pain is a part of the process. Mm-hmm. So uh, a separation involves loss. A separation involves grief, um, which is the sum of our emotional re- response to loss. Mm-hmm. And um, we, just by being who we are in the world, not just with our partners that were um, divorcing, but also with with all the people in our life, our children, for instance, just by being who we are is going to be hurtful in some way. We're gonna we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna be caught in a moment of a vulnerability and snap, right? And mm. say something that hurts. So uh, what I would say to this notion of first, you know, harm is to the degree that it's possible is to own it <laughs> when it mm-hmm. happens to say, you mm-hmm. know what, you know what, uh, you didn't need that. And it, and I apologize. Gosh, a repair is, is really very easy and goes a long way. It's extraordinary yeah. how a little repair personally, professionally in all parts of our life, but sometimes we just don't own it. Um, yeah. Maybe yes. because we don't seen it, but. Um, and in this, and in, in divorce, it gets so amplified as uh, because it can then have legal consequence, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, a moment of, a moment of acknowledging, uh, acknowledging a mistake and taking responsibility. We're, we're we're sort of habituated in this culture to understand that that is an admission of guilt, and that somebody else is going to then take advantage of that and say, "Well, you know, you admitted that you did this horrible thing to me, and it's going to be amplified." Um, I just, you know, I would hope that we would be able to give each other more grace. The more grace we can give each other in this mm. process, um, the easier it's going to be. The better the divorce is going to be. Oh, I think grace, my understanding of grace is is to offer up forgiveness, particularly to those we think that are undeserving of it. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it, grace is a, largely a Christian idea, though, though it, they're uh, analogous words in other languages and in other wisdom traditions. But it, that's exactly right. Grace is unmerited. If it's not, if it's merited, it's not grace. Yes. Right? And, and, Oh boy, howdy. It is, I think, such an essential um, ingredient in good divorce. And it is something that we strive for all the time. And even post-divorce, right? The the getting divorced is only one part of the story. It's being divorced is when we have to exercise grace over and over again. And chances are your former spouse is going to give you lots of opportunity to practice. (laughs) Grace. (laughs) No doubt. doubt. Which is good for all of us. More grace in the world. There's a... A story that you have in your collection of someone who was really able to take grace to like this varsity level and compassion and a couple that did something incredibly surprising on the backside of their divorce experience. Yeah. And this is not an, uh, I don't want to say it's a common experience, but it's not an uncommon experience. Like I've heard multiple of these stories. So the Mm -hmm. one that I'll tell you though, is um, uh, one in which um, Part, you know, couple um, divorced, I would say 10 years ago and uh, in the, in acrimony and, uh, and uh, mutual, you know, I don't want to say well, some accusations of abuse and so on. And um, my client was, my client was the wife in this situation and um, had a, had a, a long trail of, uh, a long path to walk after that of um, unraveling, sort of ex- experiencing her own grief and loss and learning how to live uh, on her own independently and navigating really significant challenges, all while maintaining a co-parenting relationship with the ex and raising a child together. And life circumstances intervened to, to a degree for her that she found herself, she found herself, uh, you know, next door to homeless. Mm. And in the context of 10 years of work between the two of them, of treating each other decently and with respect, um, without being emotional supports to each other, but treating each other um, with care, uh, she was able to, um, the ex invited her into his home and gave her a room and made sure that, you know, basic material needs were met, which allowed her to finish a college degree, um, which allowed her to get back on her feet financially. And 
And what's remarkable to me about the story is that there was no quid pro quo. There was Mm. no sort of resumption of the old patterns Hmm. uh, of recrimination and, you know, carping and yelling and, you know, um, there, it was respectful and kind and compassionate and, and also without like a strong push to, oh, well now let's get remarried or let's renew our romantic interest in each other. That time was gone. That was the pat in the past of the relationship, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, really, really extraordinary. Um, they continued to grow after the marriage and the, and the relationship continued to grow and develop. Yes. And I love broadcasting that story because it reminds people that there's lots of ways to do this. And I think so often what we hear in movies and media um, are just natural narrative throughout our country is that you can't, you have to be enemies with your ex former spouse and you have to go to war. Um, And you talked about that warrioring up with lawyers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thank our legal community who helps us to navigate crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but our lawyers um, and, and kind of that industry, they're trained through a lens that yeah. says, I am supposed to fight for you and I'm really going to fight right. for you. And then they end up just fighting with the other lawyer and the spouses right. sometimes are just taken along for the ride. And that's not at all what they tended um, that that's well, exactly right. Yes. <laughs> and it's in their financial interest to get, and this is not, we need law, right? Mm-hmm. We need, we need this process. It's just that we need other processes too. That's right. And the, the lawyers may not be the first phone call you make. I recommend right. divorce coaches, therapists, yeah. counselors, family, yes. those who've done it in different ways and to be really thoughtful and intentional about the process. Um, and you're right. This idea of reconnecting isn't uncommon. We've had couples on the Good Divorce Show who've talked about that same very thing of our former spouse was, you know, she had remarried, um, but the father of her children was quite ill and needed caregiving. And so they invited him into their home and saw him through treatment. Um, yeah. Right? Beautiful. Yes. We remain family. We're not married. We remain family. That's yeah. right. One family, two homes. Yeah. Yes. One family, many paths. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the Jung Center where you spend your time and and what sort of resources are available there and highlighting what we've talked about today so that our listeners can find more Sean Fitzpatrick, but they can also (laughs) find... You know, you. more support. <laughs> oh, I would take another dose. We might have to be able to have you back on the show again in the future, young man. Would love that. Would love that. Well, the Jung Center is a, a, a really unique place. Uh, it has been in existence since 1958 here in Houston. Uh, it's named after Carl Jung, C.G. Jung, who was a Swiss psychiatrist. Uh, I often say that for those of us who took Psych 101 in college, he's chapter two in the book. Right. Um, right. Um, for number one is Freud usually. And then there's, yes. Jung, and, then, and then there's a lot of chapters since then, but, um, young are the young center is a nonprofit organization. We are, uh, we, we program, uh, classes, lectures, workshops, really educational experiences at the intersections of the arts and mental health and spirituality, uh, all of which were deeply important to CG Jung, And it really is the insights of his psychology, uh, animate what we do. Uh, and in a given year, we have 150 events that are uh, available intended for the general public. Some clinicians, some people with mental health licenses come here to get continuing education credit, but almost everything we do is is intended for the general public. And mm. uh, so uh, you can, anyone, anywhere around the world can participate in classes here. We have uh, many of our classes are online. Another set of them are what we call hybrids. So there'll be live students here and and others online, and some some of them are just here in Houston. But we would love for you to fly down here, um, and uh, and you know, so we do have we have just just recently had a, a class on relationships and psychological type, you know, and understanding that the other person is not wrong. They actually just really are see the world differently, like they're different, fundamentally different humans. They have a different mm-hmm. psychological type, and you know, classes on anger and uh, just a lovely workshop that we just had on. Um, uh, and we offer annually uh, called the other path for women uh, without children, women who haven't 
who haven't had children about what that experience is like. This is another unnarrated or under-narrated uh, story in, mm. in our culture. Mm-hmm. We so, so align experience of, of being a woman with being a mother. And that's not the path that many women walk. And there just aren't ways of thinking and talking about it. There's a lot of shame um, mm-hmm. uh, around it. So, yeah. Oh, it sounds beautiful. And, and I want to give a shout out to Susan Myers. Um, yes. Houston-based lawyer who set us up on this blind date and has been on the show, encouraged listeners to go back and listen to her shows while she is one of those compassionate, thoughtful, well-intended lawyers who is really helping yes. families find the right path. And um, it's lovely to have your expertise with us here today. Um, I'm curious if there was just a nugget of wisdom that you might pass on to anyone who's listening today who is is facing the beginning of their divorce journey, what knowledge, what thought might you encourage them to carry with them? So I'm going to say two things. The first always is be compassionate to yourself. Um, uh, allow yourself to see your own suffering and treat yourself like you would treat one of your friends. Um, the second is connects to something that I feel is really important to you, Karen. You talk a lot about story and how we're, you know, we're writing, uh, we're writing our divorce story. Uh, and uh, one of my great mentors said, uh, and I say it all the time, he says, the first half of our lives is biography. The second half of our lives is autobiography. And we can think about, as we're going into this process, how the story that I've been living may well have been written by other people. Mm. right by our with the best intentions by our parents who wrote us a story about marriage and by maybe clergy by teachers by our communities that told us that this is this is the only way to be a human being in relationship Mm. and the divorce can begin the process of writing our own story about what it means to be in relationship for me oh Um, That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Sean Fitzpatrick, Executive Director of the Jung Center in Houston, Texas, and uh, many resources to be found. What what is the website if people are looking? You bet. Junghouston.org, J-U-N-G, Houston.org. Wonderful. And I like to remind folks every week to remember everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Good Divorce Show. We hope today's episode has helped you find a kinder, more sensible, and less expensive path through the divorce journey. Until we talk again, have a beautiful week.